Hi everyone, Steve here. Just a little warning before I get started. This particular episode has some mild language in it that some might find offensive. I can't leave it out because it's embedded in quotes from some of the people that are part of the story and it's important to the story, so just be aware. Okay, I received a really nice gift in the mail a couple of weeks ago from United Airlines thanking me for the two million miles I've flown with them over the years. If you add that to the miles I have on the other airlines I frequent, and we're quite a ways north of 3 million. As you can imagine, given my ridiculous travel schedule, I spend a lot of my time in taxis going from airports to hotels to customer locations to conference facilities and back again. And even though I sometimes feel like I need to put on a biohazard suit before getting into a lot of taxis, I actually prefer them to Uber or Lyft for one quirky reason, the drivers. Don't get me wrong, I take a fair share of Uber and Lyft cars as well, and the siren song of a clean car and a driver who hands me a cold bottle of water when I sit down is pretty compelling. But a lot of the cities I work in don't allow them, or they just haven't gotten there yet, and that's okay. And here's the reason. They all have a story to tell. The vast majority of taxi drivers, at least the ones that I encounter, are first-generation immigrants, recently arrived from some faraway corner of the world. They're grateful to be here, driving a taxi, because so many of them come from situations that most first world residents can't begin to imagine. War, famine, political unrest, or the complete and total lack of hope. Robert Kaplan is one of my favorite authors. He writes extensively about globalization, and in one of his books he made this observation. A large number of people on this planet, to whom the comfort and stability of a middle class life is utterly unknown, find war and a barracks existence a step up rather than a step down. The comparison between where they were to where they are is an eye-opener. So it's for this reason that I believe, or at least I've come to believe, that 21st century taxi drivers are the modern-day equivalent of 19th century philosophers. They may be young in age, but they have old seasoned minds and memories. They've seen so much. So back to my story. I was saying that all of these people seem to have a story to tell. Like Anjit, whose cab I took from Vancouver Airport to my hotel about six weeks ago. I started the conversation by asking him if he'd been in Vancouver a long time, which opened the door for him to tell me that he was Punjabi from the extreme north of India near the Pakistani border. He and his wife fled the region because of the unrest between India and Pakistan, and they had arrived in Vancouver with one suitcase between them. I asked him if he had been back. At this point, they'd been in Canada for six years, and he told me that he had returned to India about six months ago or so, and again six months before that. I asked him why twice in a year. That's a lot of money. And he told me. A year ago, Anjit received a call from his mother, telling him that his father was dying and that he should return home to say goodbye. So he did, and when he got there, he learned that his father was dying from a disease that had killed 90% of his liver. The disease was now gone, thanks to medication, but the damage was done. The doctors explained that the only thing that would save his father was a transplant. He and his sister were immediately cross-matched for compatibility, but Anjit, his son, didn't match, and his sister had had hepatitis in the past and therefore didn't qualify. Meanwhile, Anjit's mom demanded to be cross-matched, but they told her that there was no way it would work. The doctor said it was a 1 in 400,000 chance. I don't have any idea how accurate that number is, but the odds are very long. But she insisted, and finally they agreed, and were stunned when she came back a perfect match to her husband. Now, the liver is one of the few organs in the body, other than the skin, 
that has the ability to regenerate itself. So surgeons took a lobe of her liver, transplanted it into her husband, and within a few weeks, both were well on the way to recovery. The transplant worked. Well, that was a year ago. Six weeks ago, Anjit got a call from his father this time, telling him that his mother was very sick and might die. So he rushed back to India, where he found his mother very sick from liver disease, brought on by a raging infection that had gone untreated far too long. Again, a transplant was the only thing that would save her. Anjit, her son, my driver, was tissue matched against his mother, and this time he was a perfect match. They took a piece of his liver and put it into his mother, and here he was, driving a taxi in Vancouver, telling me this story, talking about the importance of family. The mother saved her husband, and the son saved his mother. And Anjit talked about this act the way I would talk about agreeing to give my mom a ride to the store. On another trip, years ago, a taxi driver in Dublin, Ireland, picked me up at my hotel to take me to meet a group of Irish colleagues for dinner at a local pub that I wasn't familiar with. I would have walked, but it was January, and it was typical Dublin weather. It was raining sideways. So I told him where we were going, and then just to make conversation, I said, man, it is really raining out there. And he stopped the cab. I mean, luckily, we were still in the hotel parking lot. And he turned around, and he put his elbow on the back of the seat, and he looked at me. And then in two sentences, he summarized 500 years of Irish history. I, he said, it's fucking nasty, but you could be in England. Ah, you're still fighting the troubles, are you? <laughs> so shift gears now and join me in David's car. David drives for Uber, and he's taking me from Point Clear, Alabama, way down at the southern tip of the state, to the Mobile Airport. He's a southern boy, comfortable to ride with, easy to listen to, and he's also full of surprises. David grew up in Japan, where his father played baseball. He loved it over there. I loved it growing up there. I was playing baseball and football. Got to watch my dad play softball. There was a team in the 60s and 70s called the King and His Court that come to uh, Okinawa one time. And it was a five-man softball team that would take on any ten-man team. And they were like a USO tour. They just, uh, that's all they did for a little uh, play softball. And uh, they would challenge any ten-man softball team on the island and just kick their butts. The pitcher was so good, couldn't, couldn't hit it. If you did hit it, it'd be like a pop fly or just a... Um, and, and when they got to bat, they were awesome. <laughs> then there's Asuma, who drove me from the Atlanta airport to my hotel over by Emory University. He told me how happy he was to be in the United States and how easy it was for him to work hard to earn a living. In his own country of Sierra Leone, he told me the government is totally corrupt, and anyone who is successful catches the government's attention, and they then take everything. So I asked him what he would do if he were the president of Sierra Leone to make it better. Invest in the country. I don't care if they kill me or whatever they do or they take from me, but I make sure I help the people who is poor, and because at the end of the day, when you die, you don't take nothing with you. Today, you broke. You don't have nothing. Okay. And I broke, I have nothing. And when you get the chance, you get the power, and you don't know me anymore, because we are not the same category no more. 
So what makes so bad? This country help Africa. Give the lot of aid, lot of help. Then turn around, take back, and bring here. Why here is like a drop water in the bucket. So anytime America or Europe and want for help Africa for reduce the corruption, for reduce the poverty, they can do it. You know what happened? The way I think, I don't know because I don't have high ed education. If you have $10, it's not going to be equal. The corruption, people don't even feel it. I think, because poor man like me, I don't feel it. And way the top do corruption. As long as they let me work, then I own something. I know used a lot of money. I don't miss nothing. For me, for you and any other person, know the difference. But for me, the poor man able to manage life. I'm okay. At the end of the day, I go home and be in my couch and watch news channel I want or music channel or whatever channel I want and eat my food and go to bed and get up and go in my car you know I don't have to wait for train or whatever so I'm satisfied like the people who come from foreign country I say if you don't like it go back and then we have Akbar Khan what a character from Toronto's Pearson International Airport, he drove me an hour north of the city to speak in an executive retreat. I asked him to tell me his story, and it was so good that when we got to where we were going, I asked him to pull over, park, let the meter run, and finish telling me about the adventure he had getting out of the country. When I left the country, with a lot of disaster, the only things was I had a good time in Russia. When I came back, I couldn't stay too long, six days, so I have to escape three days and two nights, something a walking distance from Afghanistan to Pakistan. Two and a half million landmines until now, it's already on the ground. Believe it now. More than four and a half billion people was killed by the Russians. Two and a half millions, one and a half millions paralyzed. And the guy goes to me, he said, when you hear the chopper's voice, the sound, run for your life. I said, why? This is their Russians, buddy. You're escaping the country. You're not invited to go, you know, by with the passport. You don't have any documents. You're running away, and the government needs the soldiers to fight against the rebels. We are in the rebels' territory now. It's dangerous. If they, you made a mistake, they can kill you. You made a mistake, they, the Russians can kill you. Russian and Afghani works together to fight against the freedom fighters and the freedom fighters are also Afghani. They hate the Russians, they hate the people who work with the Russians. I'm telling you like I went through with a lot of a lot of headache but always I challenge myself. Sometimes though my best stories don't come from taxi drivers. This next one comes from Santania, a woman from Haiti who cleaned my room at a hotel in Orlando a few weeks ago. Actually, that's not true. She never got around to cleaning the room because I wanted to hear her story, which was great. I asked her to tell me about her mom's cooking, and I asked her to tell me about her grandfather, who raised her because her father was murdered at a young age. Her grandfather died when he was 115. When my mom cooked some goat meat, 
and then she take a little bit. <laughs> this is too much, too much. She cooking cool whenever she put to cook. Well done. Oh, everybody crazy. Everybody crazy. When 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 we do the funeral for my mom, uh, this February just passed. Make me 60 years old now. And then everybody say, oh, I miss her, I miss her. When she cooking, whenever the food not well e to eat, she let you taste. Oh, my God. We crazy. And then too much. My mom, my mom, she's too much. I could never forget about her. Here's the deal, folks. In his book, Choke, Chuck Palahniuk, also the author of Fight Club, said it really well. The truth is, he said, immigrants tend to be more American than people born here. That is so true. Of course, there are undesirable elements mixed in with the throngs of people lined up at the border. But you remember the quote at the base of Lady Liberty? Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Well, that's all of us, right? That's all of us. It's who we are. It's why we're a good people and a good country. Keep out the criminals? Absolutely. In a recent editorial, Tom Friedman said it really well. America needs a high wall for border security, but a high wall with a wide gate. The thing is, the immigrants trying to become citizens of a new country, whether it's the United States or somewhere else, don't have a monopoly on nitwits. I have them in my own town, and some of them are seventh-generation Vermonters. Now, I leave you with this from Nigerian poet Ijeoma Umebinyo. In her book, Questions for Ada, she says this, Here's to the security guards who maybe had a degree in another land. Here's to the manicurist who had to leave her family to come here, painting the nails, scrubbing the feet of strangers. Here's to the janitors who don't understand English, yet work hard despite it all. Here's to the fast food workers who work hard to see their families smile. Here's to the laundry man at the Marriott who told me with a sparkle in his eyes how he was an engineer in Peru. Here's to the bus driver, the Turkish Sufi who almost danced when I quoted Rumi. Here's to the harvesters who live in fear of being deported for coming here to open the road for their future generation. Here's to the taxi drivers from Nigeria, Ghana, Egypt, and India who gossip amongst themselves. Here is to them waking up at 4 a.m., calling home to hear the voices of their loved ones. Here is to their children, to the children who, despite it all, become artists, writers, teachers, doctors, lawyers, activists, and rebels. Here's to international money transfer for never getting home. Here's to their children who carry the heartbeats of their motherland and, even in sleep, speak with pride about their fathers. Keep on. One way or another... We're all immigrants. Let's never forget that. For the Natural Curiosity Project, I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you, and I really mean it. Thank you for listening. <laughs>